Well, good morning, family. Good to see you here. Uh, thank you for making the effort, many of you, uh, pressing in from some distance to get here. It is great to have you. And for those of you who are unable to make it and are listening online or are following online, we greet you as well. It's good to be together. I invite you to take your copy of the Bible and go to the book of Psalms and find the 78th. Psalm 78, if you would. If you are here as our guest, by the way, we've got a couple, uh, uh, some so just dear, dear friends, some we've not seen for some time who are with us today. We welcome you. So glad, glad to have you here. Maybe you're uh, new here. Um, and I want to let you know, you are, we are in a, a series that is highly atypical for us. It is rare for us to do thematic studies or uh, topical series at all. But we are three weeks into an examination of our church's basic core values and practices. We did that because we're in a new home. We're in a new part of the city. Uh, we're meeting new friends all the time, in and out. So we felt like this might be a helpful time just to sort of reestablish. Here are some things that are unique to us uh, or, or maybe not so unique. But these are the things that sort of drive us and push us. The last couple of weeks have been very, very key on that. What is a church? Uh, and we are a church. Then a, a good, strong biblical defense for the notion of formal church membership. Um, we examined Reformation theology last week. In fact, we're a Baptist church. And uh, today we are, we are looking at uh, one thing that may be a little unique in your experience. We are talking today about the way that we structure our Sunday, specifically as it relates to the inclusion of children, even our very youngest children, among us in worship, and probably the graphic behind me says who we are. I, I thought about this uh, today. Is this a who we are discussion, or is this a what we do discussion? And that is a hard distinction to make because we are formed by our practices. Um, our practices do tend to shape us, and it's, so it's hard to disentangle uh, practices or liturgies from the belief beneath those liturgies. So uh, if you're wondering, is this really who they are? Don't think about that too hard, okay? Just, uh, if this is something we do, we believe in, and it's something we practice, but um, we want to keep it in its proper, proper lane. We recognize this is peculiar, uh, what we do. At least uh, it's atypical in our day, historically, the practice of dividing, separating families. Uh, according to uh, age groups, that, was, that is the historic anomaly, but we know that it, that is not typical in our day. So we want to give you a good cogent response if people were to ask you why we do what we do. The simplest way that we like to put it is this, we just worship together. We worship together. That is a, a concise way of framing our thought. And then we're going to kind of unpack that maybe a little more fully as we go through this. If you have been through our membership materials, this is going to be very familiar to you. So it'll be rehearsing things that you have heard, maybe some of you fairly recently. All right, Psalm 78, if you'll join me there, beginning with verse 1. Psalm of Asaph, the Bible says this. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation 
the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel which he commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and rise and tell them to their children so that they would set their hope in God and not forget the works of God keep his commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Well, my favorite piece of furniture in our home is our dining room table. We've had it for about 10 years. And uh, it, is, it is my favorite. We found it used. Uh, Matt helped me get it up there, up the hill on top of my Jeep, like a couple of rednecks. And we got and positioned it in our dining room. And with, with the uh, uh, when it's fully extended, when the leaves are in it, we think we can get about 14 people in it. So with a piano bench and all around there, we can get a lot of people around. Most Wednesday nights, it is full, and it is a joy for me to see it. And it brings me back. This is my favorite image when we talk about this t- topic. It brings me back to my childhood. I always had, I don't know if you agree with this, I had an aversion to being put at the kids' table when there were gatherings. Even when I was a little kid, I wanted to be close to what was happening at the main table where my grandparents were and my, my aunts and uncles. And we'd, they'd tell these long, wonderful stories and they kind of picked up some of the humor and the things that just seemed like there was so much. And me and my cousins would be out on the, you know, on the porch somewhere and having to play with them. And it was uh, being put out of that gathering. To me, was, uh, it felt like a kind of exclusion that I, at least at some level, resented. Well, that image comes to mind whenever I come to this topic because on June 21st, 2009, we invited our children to the grown-up table. This is 13 years ago now. That summer, we restructured the way our church views church and family in such a way that virtually all of our gatherings take place in a setting like this where we have very young with us uh, all the way through into the senior years. So that was 13 years ago. If, if a child was five years old at that time, they would be 18 now. So they would have, they would have spent all those years in this sort of worship type setting. There is somewhere north during that time, somewhere north of 755 sermons have been preached over that season. Matt and I were talking about it this week. If I finished this sermon, just for context, if I finished this sermon and tapped him and he got up and preached another sermon, and then after he was done, I tapped in and preached another sermon, and we went back and forth like that. If our sermons average in the range of about 30, 35 minutes, will it? or more, uh, we would be preaching day and night, through the night, all morning long, all day, all night, until Valentine's Day. So this, this, there's a lot, a lot of content over these 13 uh, years. We went through Romans, Genesis, Ephesians, Mark, Song of Solomon. In an, uh, you said, you did Song of Solomon in an age-integrated church. We did. It was one of those courageous things we've ever done. First uh, and Second Corinthians, Christ in the Major Prophets, Hosea, another one, uh, Gospel of John, the Psalms of Ascent, First and Second Peter, Jonah, Ecclesiastes, Galatians, Habakkuk, and we will soon start 
Matthew. We read through, just as Matt Kant led us here today, just one chapter at a time. We've gone through the whole New Testament and much of the Old Testament, all of the wisdom literature, Exodus, Daniel, Haggai, most all the, the minor prophets, Hosea, Ezra. We introduced a formative, very basic hymnology, uh, singing some of these rich, theologically informed songs. And, our, and, and we worshiped together uh, songs like It Is Well and Mighty Fortress. What we sang this morning, uh, Oh, for a thousand tongues of Jesus, thy blood and righteousness. In Christ alone, we sang uh, this morning. And our children were present for all of it. They were near it, picking up little snatches here and there, maybe not everything, but they were present for it all. Now, you know, the prevailing mindset is that this kind of thing, what we do here, is too dry, too lengthy, too deep for children, and they should be shielded from it. Our contention is that these truths are so precious to us, so dear to us. They ground our joy. They are the basis of our hope and purpose. And that our children, rather than being shielded from it, should be surrounded by it, rubbing up against it, and immersed in it with every expectation that in time God will bring life. Our hope is that these gatherings would become part of the catalog of their memories. When our children were very small, I picked up a little pamphlet. Maybe you've seen it. This has been, I didn't even know there was such a thing as churches done like this. A little pamphlet by John and Noel Piper called The Family Together in God's Presence. When I read it, they described the, just the idea of children hearing about the love of God while sitting on their mom's lap or their dad's lap while their, their dads held them closely. And that image to me registered as something so attractive. And so 13 years ago, that's really methodologically a large shift that we uh, put in place and we have done it to this day. Well, this psalm provides a little bit, just a basic theological, methodological basis for the psalm or for the practice that we have here. It kind of gives us the heart of something that is dear to us all. The aim, the goal, whatever method, if you belong to the Lord, if you follow him, your hope, the thing you ache to see and pray to see is that your children would know the Lord. I think that is just about as basic as it, it could get. I mean, you say, right, I want my kids to behave. I know. I want my kids to succeed. I know. I want my kids to stay out of trouble. I know. But your principal desire is that they would be saved from sin and its consequences, that they would know the Lord. Our profound desire, every parent, is that they would set their hope in God. So everybody, irrespective of method, has to contend with how do we get there by God's grace? We steward the message. So we take this message, these things that our text says, that we have heard and known and have heard from our fathers, and we share these secrets. We open our mouth in a parable, and we do not Hide them from our children. I think that summarizes the hope regarding this methodological decision. That we would not keep these things 
hidden from our children. As we worked through this material years and years ago, and I will say, if my memory serves, this is only the second time we've done, that we've been doing this for 13 years, it's only the second time that we have taken this material in this gathering, the, the, the main gathering, to do this. So this is not typical. We would far prefer to just do what we do rather than talk about what we do. And that generally is what the way we operate. So um, if you are here as a guest, I don't know, lucky you, right? This is not what we would typically do. It will feel more lecture-like, but it will hopefully give you some basis for why we pull our children in close during this gathering each week. Let me give you four things that age integration is not. So first, before we talk about why we do what we do, let me just remind you what we are not talking about. Age integration is not a movement. If you're inclined to say, well, this is sort of a creative idea, uh, or it is uh, reactionary to a problem necessarily, it's acute innovation, that is not at all what we're doing. We believe with historical warrant and with a scriptural basis, that what we're doing here is the historic norm. The, the, the gathering of uh, generations for worship is a practice that has been uh, carried forward from generation to generation. It is not a movement. It is not an innovation. For many, many years, I would love to tell you the story, how the Lord, uh, is just so gracious, gave us uh, a time uh, right after I came to Basswood where we would go up to Cades Cove once a year during the fall and we would have a service in one of these old abandoned churches. You're not allowed to do that anymore, but we do that. We did that back then in the early 2000s. And um, one of the rangers there, I was up there one day, he showed me in the Primitive Baptist Church where we met a, a number of times, how this building that was built in the 1850s was constructed with uh, poplar on the inside, white pine on the outside. But when they, he showed how those beams were set in place in the ceiling, uh, the wood was still tacky and wet from when it was put in place. And you could see big hands from the 1850s and little tiny hands right beside that positioning that just in my mind I could see a father and a son or a grandfather and a grandson working together to construct this building. I would say this is historically the case. It is not a movement. And if it is a movement, it's not a particularly successful movement because as you know, it is atypical and peculiar uh, in most settings. Number two, it is not our banner. I want to be very emphatic on that. This is not, as our church, our banner. If people leave here on Sundays and all they can talk about is this is the church that has no nursery, then we have failed. That would be grievous to us. In fact, they would say anything other than the centrality of the gospel and the worship of Jesus Christ. That would be grievous. If our meetings center on anything other than the hope of the gospel, the glory of Christ, the preeminence of our Savior, then we are promoting something idolatrous, so we should avoid that. You would not only be underserved, but it would be irresponsible for us to make that our focus. You see this on all of our literature. We are a gospel-driven church together on purpose. Every word of that matters. We are a gospel-driven church together on purpose. So it is not a movement. It is not our banner. It's also not child-centeredness. 
This is not a child-centered methodology. That would be another form of idolatry. Uh, Everybody um, has a different idea on this as to why we're doing it. We don't bring our children in here with this a notion that, well, you know, if, if, if you come here thinking, well, all, everybody should enjoy my kids, you know, climbing on the chairs and running through the aisles. That's not at all what we are talking about here. It is not child-centeredness, and we know that it requires work. We ask that of you most every week to, to be attentive to that. Um, and we know as it, it requires work if you are a parent, and it requires work if you are attend here without young children. It just involves work. So I, it, it's necessary that moms and dads, we know they have to be attentive to when a child needs to be taken out. Not taken out, taken out, but taken out of the, taken out of the service. And, um, and if you are, a, if you are a, uh, an older person, uh, it, it requires patience, doesn't it? I have watched y'all love families around here where a lot of times kids will slip something down between the the chairs and you'll pick it up and hand them or hand them a little sippy cup and just being attentive. We want to be a church that notices when others need help and we have often commended to you the practice. If you hear a baby being a little squeaky during the service, that can be a good prompt for all of us to pray for that child, that in time that child would come to know and love and serve the Lord, but we are delighted to have them here. I don't know that anybody in the last few years has done as much thinking on this topic, at least in the last few years, as our own Matt Hudson. He completed and defended last year his doctoral thesis where he interacts with the works of, of Abraham Kuyper on this topic, specifically uh, sphere sovereignty as it relates to the spheres of church and family. I asked him permission to make this available, and if you would like to read it, he said, they're free to read it. He said there are sections that are really, really boring and were meant to be boring. But if you'd like to read it, you can see him. He'll get the PDF to you. But I would like to commend something else that he has done years ago that could be really, really helpful. Maybe you picked it up. That little parenting in the pew pamphlet, much simpler, very accessible. But it'll give you some tools on how to walk with your family in a setting like this. We'll, Lord willing, in the next few weeks, we'll have a chance to teach through that uh, maybe in, within the next month or so. But um, the point is this, we gladly, gladly, joyfully include our boys and girls in our gatherings. However, though they are welcome participants, they are never to be the focus. So it is not child-centeredness. Number four, it's not a movement, it's not a banner, it's not child-centeredness, and neither is it the gospel. It is not the gospel. We feel like we've got to say that, though it does sound little overstated possibly, what we are saying is we don't want to ever confuse a good thing with a primary thing. So if that feels unduly dominant in your thinking, we would encourage you to reorder your priorities. If the concept of age integration is what makes the assembly precious to you, you should pause and reflect, repent and believe the gospel. Right, so it is not... The gospel. The gospel is uniquely central in all of our efforts and proclamation. What do we mean by that? You know the gospel. Just the the very simple message that you defied the law of God and are born in Adam under the wrath of God in need of a Savior. Christ died as a substitute for sinners, enduring the wrath that should have fallen. To you 
And as you repent, turn to him by faith alone, trusting the work of God alone through Christ, by, by grace, repenting, resting your hopes there. You are received into a right relationship, adopted into a, the family of God, and secured a place with God in glory. It is the glad proclamation of the obedient life, representative life, sacrificial atoning death, victorious resurrection and glorious ascension of Jesus Christ. His readiness to redeem. That is the gospel. It is not the fact that you get to sit next to your toddler during worship, not even close. Early on in this, Matt and I would talk at points, and it was very concerning initially. We see very little of this now. But we, we had encountered some people who I would say had such a distorted love for this method that we felt like they would tolerate just about anything from this pulpit as long as they were allowed to sit with their kids. And we're going to say that absolutely is a skewed understanding of church life. It is not a movement. It is not our banner. It is not child-centeredness. And it is certainly not the gospel. What that means is we reserve gospel-level passion for the gospel. That is uniquely central in our affections. So why then do we do what we do? Let me get, hit these points, and there are 10 of them. I know that's, that, that you're nervous, I'm nervous, we're all nervous, but we'll, we'll get through it. Ten, ten points uh, that's really 750 Sundays ago, I laid this out before the church in essentially this same format. In fact, the wording is, is virtually identical to what we presented on that first Sunday when we rolled out this as a proposal to the church. Same content. Why do we do it? Number one, there exists no compelling scriptural basis for age-segregated Bible teaching. Now that, I would say, as believing the regulative principle, I, I would say that that should be enough uh, alone, standing on its own merits. It's just that simple. There exists in the word of God no compelling scriptural basis for segregating Bible teaching according to uh, groups or ages. In fact, on the contrary, um, we see whole families, it is assumed, uh, worshiping together in both the Old and the New Testaments. This is a commendation that is given to moms and dads to worship together. In Genesis 18, 19, said of Abraham, I have chosen him, speaking of Abraham, for I know that he will command his children after him. Deuteronomy chapter 6, just replete with ministry happening in the context of family. Psalm 78, what we just looked at. Ephesians chapter 6, it's noteworthy to me that Paul did not have to say, okay, bring the children in here so we can speak to them. No, just in the flow of the, of the letter, he says, no, children, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right. No scriptural basis for it alone. On that basis alone, we would encourage inclusion of full families together. Number two, the practice of families worshiping and studying together, as I've mentioned, is the historic norm and it's proven effective over time in passing the baton of faith between generations. Um, so the notion, we'll not belabor that, 
That is the anomaly historically. Um, this was, there was an assumption that parents, irrespective of whatever method you use, there was an assumption that parents would assume the principal responsibility for discipling the children that God gives them. That is primary. That is a duty that rests on you, mom and dad. That is your, and, and we come along and joyfully assist in that and want to play a role in that and want to be a voice in the lives of your families. But that is a duty that God has placed on, on you. I, obviously, the obvious one I just mentioned, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You shall teach these things to your children as you sit down, as you rise up, as you p- pass on the way. I've heard that the Puritans, maybe Robert Murray McShane, Richard Baxter, they would go into homes and in the course of just visiting, they would ask the child a catechism question such as, who is God? And if they did not respond with the Westminster response, God is a spirit whose being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth are infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. If the child did not respond to that way, he didn't get onto the child, he looked at the daddy. And that, that is unsettling to us. But the expectation was this father and, and the assumption was if this was not corrected, they were subject to discipline. Now that's a high bar, but it emphasizes something that we believe to be, be scriptural. In um, Richard Baxter's um, directory for family worship in Scotland, He says, the assembly requires and appoints ministers to make diligent search and inquiry whether there be among them a family or families which neglect the duty of family worship. If such a family is found, the head of the family is to be admonished privately to amend his fault. In case of his continuing therein, he is to be gravely and sadly reproved by the session, after which were proof if he is still to neglect family worship, let him, for his obstinacy in such an offense, be suspended and barred from the Lord's table until he amended. Again, a high, high bar. Number three, this practice promotes family worship as a primary hub for discipleship and instruction. Ephesians 4, uh, 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Again, from Richard Baxter, you are not likely to see general reformation until you procure family reformation. Some little religion may be here or there, but while it is confined to single persons, it is not promoted and is not promoted in families. It will not prosper nor promise future increase. So we would say it this way. If all you do is come here on Sundays and then close your Bible, pick it back up the following Sunday, this is not a net gain, it's a loss, what we're doing here. We're going to say that there's an expectation and assumption that moms and dads are pouring into their sons and daughters over the course of the week, encouraging, admonishing, opening God's word, teaching God's word, bringing Um, the hope of the gospel to bear. Number four, this approach affirms in practice and structure what we believe about family and church life, particularly as it relates to the duties of men. We talk a lot about this. The uh, the Puritans talked a lot about this. 
Uh, it really presses the responsibility of fathers specifically. And I think that is what we saw in Ephesians 6, 4. And hopefully you know this. This may be radical in your thinking, but I'll go ahead and say it. Um, gentlemen, you bear a responsibility that is uniquely your own that your wife does not carry in terms of leadership, responsibility for the family. So to lead out in these areas, that is a particularly strong burden that, gentlemen, you carry, a, a, the, the language of benevolent responsibility, caring for those under your care, your wife and your children. So this fourth point is the logical next step. If you're going to say that it's a biblical assertion that training and discipleship of, chief, uh, of children is chiefly given to the parents, then what conclusions must we make regarding the way a church operates. So we're gonna, we're gonna encourage you in that direction. If our preaching and challenging says to men, lead, but our structure says you can't or you won't, you can see how there'd be a disconnect there. So we want our, we want our structure to be consistent with the assertions we're making that we believe are biblical in terms of a mom and dad's responsibility. Regardless what we press you to do, we should assume that you are instructing your children. Now, we, we say this is a duty that is primarily on you. You might just say parenthetically, it is, it is primarily yours, but it is not exclusively yours. In fact, we would say bringing children into gatherings like this allows them, and in home groups and other settings like this, it allows them to benefit from ministry from others in the body. Rather than pushing them to the margins, it, it allows them the freedom to benefit and to draw from, and how we've seen that so many times. I mean, I've talked to young adults who've been here for a number of years who would say, here I can name three or four, five, six older believers who have pointed me to Christ and have shaped my life. So primarily, but not exclusively, the duty of, of moms and dads. I think I mentioned a few weeks ago, one of our daughters uh, saying, some years ago when she was in high school, she said, when I see, named a brother, when I see him worship, I love Jesus more. And so we want to provide a setting where that is normal and expected. Number five, that's this age-integrated model serves unmarried adults, including single parents, by allowing them to fellowship alongside healthy, growing families, thereby providing a hopeful pattern for singles and, in some cases, their children. I hope you're not taking notes. That's a long line. And it provides, uh, it serves unmarried adults, including single parents, by allowing them to fellowship alongside healthy, growing families, thereby providing a hopeful pattern for singles and, in some cases, their children. This is one of the um, common objections to this model, this age-integrated model, is what do you do with the singles? And we would say that is a faulty assumption. The, the faulty assumption is that all we do is get together and talk about family. That's not what we do at all. In fact, not even close. So... We've said that, I mean, that's simply not the case. Uh, on June 21st, 2009, we were in Romans 4.15. The following week, June 28th, 2009, we were in Romans 4.16. That applies to everybody. So, it, that, and that would, that would serve 
a married couple, it would also serve an unmarried man or woman. That is for all of us. So what do we do with unmarried people? I think that's a silly question. What do, we, what do you mean, what do we do with unmarried people? They are part of the family, so they come in, and we minister to them, and they minister to us, and so many of them have been a vital part of the life of our fellowship here. It is, um, it's a straw man. Okay, number six. This approach allows families who, due to schedules and pace of life, are often drawn in different directions during the week to sanctify the Lord's Day as a day of togetherness. We just want to give you the Lord's Day together. We want to give you a day where you can worship together. And we understand, but particularly our youngest here are not going to catch anything or very little at all. But allowing them to be near at the point when they begin to, I think even a young child benefits from seeing his mother and his father participate in worship. Now, if you've let your mind drift, can I say that again? Even the very youngest benefit from seeing their mom and dad participate in worship. Even a young child can get a sense, even if they can't articulate it, they can get a sense that what is happening on this day in this room among these people is different than other days of the week. When I hear my mother sing, my father listening, leaning in, taking notes, praying, participating in the Lord's table, this is clear something important. Even if I don't fully understand it, I know that it matters to them. And we would say to you, we know that it is hard but we would also affirm that it is very good. Number seven, family-integrated churches or age-integrated churches welcome children to the grown-up table. I'm using that image again, allowing them to benefit from helpful Godward discussions. We have seen this happen over and over and over again. Uh, groups of, of people across ages, men and women and children, uh, listening to their parents engage in in conversation. We've talked about this. It's not unusual, I think, to see um, fathers and children, single adults holding babies and uh, interacting uh, with, with others and allowing their kids, uh, allowing young children to be a part of this. And I think it's remarkable how much they catch very, very often. Some of the, some of the astute questions that we will get after a sermon from very young children is indication that they're catching perhaps more than you realize. The little tool, the paper that we give out, sometimes I'll get that or a picture of that during the week to get a sense of what is being caught by even very, very young children. You know that Joshua chapter 4, the Bible instructs us to capitalize on your children's natural inquisitiveness. They're going to have questions. They're going to ask things. And he's saying this is a great opportunity to teach them about God. Remember Joshua chapter 4. The Lord had just carried them through uh, the the Jordan and miraculously opened it up so that they could pass through there. And they built these stone memorials. Why? Well, the Lord told them, well, the time's going to come when you're going to pass through this again years from now. And your children are going to ask you, what is this, what are these, what's this pile of stones for? And you can seize on that inquisitiveness and say, you know what happened right here? You see this river? This river opened up. 
The Lord opened up so that we could pass through and be spared. You could testify to the providential, miraculous care and faithfulness of God. So, way that would work in here, the kid's going to have all kinds of questions. What is the Lord's table really about, Dad? I, I have watched you shepherding your children. I love this. I have watched you shepherding your little sons and daughters where you'll hold the bread and you'll talk, whisper into their ears and hold the cup and explaining, opening up these precious practices to them. I have watched you, actually the song we just sang today, uh, Jesus strong and kind. I have watched some of you turn your children around and sing to them face to face and stroke their head while you sing. You can always come to Jesus, Jesus strong and kind. That is absolutely something we are jealous to protect and free you up to do. Number eight, united worship, age-integrated worship. This worship method serves to promote oneness in the home as everyone is studying the same passage under the same teacher. Many of us have had the experience of going home on church, from church and saying, all right, sweetheart, tell, tell me, what did you learn today? And you'd have to learn, and sometimes you'd have to untangle some things. Sometimes they'd say things, I'm not sure that's entirely right, and, and have, to, have to correct some things. So if anything heretical is said, we're all going to hear it together, right, from here. We're all under one teacher preaching one passage and receiving it together. And again, we sort of admonish you, particularly moms and dads. We encourage you. If you've got a 4-year-old and a 9-year-old and a 12-year-old, when Matt preaches or I preach or somebody else preaches, when the Word of God is open and preached, you're listening for your own benefit, but you're also listening with the ears of a 4-year-old and a 9-year-old and a 12-year-old. Because the expectation is on the ride home and maybe into the afternoon or maybe later that evening, maybe at bedtime. Uh, Pastor Matt said this. Do you understand what he meant when he said this? That is the practice of discipleship that we are engaging. You've got to hear it through the ears of a child, rehearse it, apply it, and love them through it. Number nine, age-integrated worship. Also, the father and mother to effectively monitor and, if necessary, correct the teaching that their children receive. This is related to point number, number eight. You are responsible for what your children receive. So um, judge all things, right? Judge all things. Hold fast what, what is good. I am never troubled. Matt is never troubled when you come up afterwards and ask for a point of clarification on something that may be a doctrinal issue that could be a little confusing. We would absolutely commend and encourage that. If you are responsible to be attentive to and superintending what your children are taught about God, if we believe, as Matt pointed us to a couple weeks ago, that the most important thing about us is what comes to our mind when we think about God, as Tozer said, then it is right and you are duty bound to attend to. Is what I am hearing and is what my family hearing trustworthy? Finally, number 10, this model ensures a high probability that when holy moments of growth and conviction occur in the lives of our children, a parent will be present to walk with them. Truth is, you know your children in a way that we simply cannot. 
I, I love all kids, I love my kids best. You love all kids, you love your kids best. You're attentive to their needs, you're aware of their needs, and you can be, um, you can bring application in a way that uniquely you can. You know this child's different than this child. This girl tends to be a little fearful. This boy tends to be a little skeptical. This girl tends to have a hypersensitive conscience. This girl tends to be distracted. And so in your attentive, responsible care for them, it allows a mom and dad to tenderly and wisely and with sympathetic hands comfort, correct, encourage and admonish, and if, by grace, God turns their hearts to the Lord, you're present to walk them through that, that season. That is a great, great joy. It would, is our preference that you would know that delight as a responsible mom and dad. Well, as I said, what we would desire is that we would simply do what we do rather than talk about what we do. But really, if we're going to summarize it so, so simply, it is that our children are welcomed in. We allow them to right up to the table. It's important, we think, for them to hear you sing, watch you respond, witness their tears, observe you in prayer. And we trust God to use this method. We trust the Lord. I should say this parenthetically. Hopefully this goes without saying it, but I, I, I do feel such a desire to make this plain to you. Oh, I just really want you to get this. We want, we want to be as wise as we can be. We want to be as wise in our methods as we can be. We want to be as scriptural as we can be. But we trust the Lord to work in their hearts. The, the imagery that you have heard, the stacking up of dry wood, and then we just pray that the Lord will bring fire, that the Lord will, will ignite this. With a, it, our, our hope is in the Lord. If you heard at some point in your life some pamphlet or some teaching, seven steps to raising godly children, as if it is formulaic, that if I do this, 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 and this, if I hit B7 at the, in the machine, out will come what I want in some kind of creedal, formulaic way, you've been lied to. That is a cruel lie. I have watched moms labor under that burden that I just got to do these things, then my kids are going to turn out right. That is, that is the worst kind of Bernie Madoff deception. That is not true. We trust the Lord. And the gospel does what the gospel does. If your children grow up to know the Lord and follow the Lord and love the Lord, it is because he is merciful, not because you got your method right. If your children come to know the Lord, it is because God is merciful. It is not because you got your method right. And we want to be as wise as we can. But we must trust the Lord to work in their hearts. Your need, the same need that you needed, you need for your children. 
the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, would shine in their hearts and give the light of the knowledge, the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, that they would pass from death to life. And you know what we want to do here? We just want to expose our children to the sweetest, most glorious truths that we hold so dear to our hearts. I'm told that a little infant Hebrew baby, the first words they would hear upon birth, they would turn, hand that child to his daddy, and the daddy would hold that baby's ear up to his mouth, and he would quote the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And these things which I command you this day shall be in your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your children and talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you sit down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign upon your hand and as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorpost of your house. It is that truth that forms the theological basis for why we want to scoot the kids up to the table and expose them to the sweetest and most glorious truths. That sort of Aristotelian, peripatetic, just walking around, just moving around all the time. When you sit down, when you rise up, as you're walking through the house, all the things, just walking and teaching, teaching and walking all the time. We live together, we vacation together, we play together, we work together, we do chores together, we travel together. But when it comes to that which is most dear to us, most central to us, we see no reason to exclude our children from that. We do that together as well. In fact, we have believe there's every reason to include them with us. That's how affections take shape. That's how ideals are formed. They are formed, James K.A. Smith would teach us, by our liturgies, just the practices, the things that we just live around and are taught all the time. He says, in worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. If the heart is like a compass, a sort of homing device, then we need to regularly calibrate our hearts, tuning them to be directed to the creator, our magnetic north. Worship is not primarily a venue for innovative creativity, but a place for two things, discerning reception and faithful repetition. And we believe that that is a a means that God could use to awaken the hearts of our children, that gospel proximity. We teach what we know. We reproduce what we are. It's how we learn. It's how affections take shape. We are formed by our practices. I love to tease you about this. I love you with all my heart. I love to tease you about this. I'm not sure you could find a 10-year-old in Knoxville that doesn't know a particular song, a particular song in this region. They are taught it all the way through, and you have learned it, I'm sure, very early. It's a song about the illegal, illegal liquor trade, if you're aware, uh, wild, feral women, and murdering strangers in the woods, I think. But um, we teach it to our children. 
when, uh, and even that little part where they, everybody, you know, whoo, and uh, they just know that. Everybody learns it. And I don't think it's taught. It is just caught because they've lived around it so much, they're just steeped in it. They can't even shake it off if they wanted to. It's just around them. It is, it is caught. It is, they are exposed to it Well, in a much more holy manner. We expose our children to the sweetest things. So that kind of repetition. Do you think there's something good about them hearing the doxology sung over and over and over? That seeps into, by God's grace, their hearts. Michael Horton said, the problem is our children increasingly have not been given enough of the Christian faith to even apostatize from it properly. They've just not even been exposed to the basics of the gospel. They are going to reject the church. At least let them see it before they reject it. At least allow them to walk around in it and observe it. And our hope is they will come to love it like you love it. So our intent, our hope, if, you, if you're looking for a way to summarize to your neighbor, what do our Sundays look like? We just worship together. That's it. That, that is the simplest basic way to put it. We just worship together. And people are going to attach all kinds of weird little, you know, well, what does that mean? Well, no, we just worship together. Well, so you homeschool. Well, no, we worship together. You have all your babies at home? No, no, we just worship together. You, you, you raise chickens for meat? No, no, we just worship together. We bring our, our children up close to you. crochet your boy's pants. No, we, you're, we worship together. We bring our children up close to us and allow them to rub up against us during this most holy practice. Well, in the same way that we reserve gospel-level passion for the gospel alone, let me just say this, church, we also want to keep this issue in its rightful place. This is not an area where we are intent on squaring off with our brothers and sisters on this topic. We can only invest in one method. That's what we do. We've got, we can only do, we're responsible for one church. And you know in our city, there are many, by God's grace, there are many gospel preaching churches where the word of God is responsibly handled and the hope of the gospel is laid out and we love them and we affirm them and their methods are going to be a little bit different than ours. We could care less. We, the desire is that the gospel would be proclaimed, that it would bear fruit and that their tribe would increase. So we would urge you, Basswood members, don't make this a point of fellowship. Let's just keep it in its place. We can only invest in one method, and we've got enough to repent of right here to not feel like we've got to bear responsibility for every church in Knoxville. So we worship together. We worship together. Can I just share, as, as we close, I'm right at the very end here. Let me just close out with this. I've been thinking about the last couple of days. and I, I'm just going to, I'm done preaching. This is testimony, okay? This is just, just me just sort of opening up my heart and sharing. This could so easily be misunderstood, so I'm going to trust you to hear this charitably because I'm testifying to a kind of grace that I do not understand, a grace that makes no sense to me. It's just the mercy of God 100%. When I was in my 20s, I, I began volunteering, serving a church in Iron Station, North Carolina, and 
I would, I would go up there and serve and help through the weekend. They couldn't pay me anything, but they fed me. And then I would, I would go home uh, late on Sunday nights. And during that time, the Lord began to awaken in my heart a desire to, to serve the people of God, just to care for the church, just to, just to serve God's people to church. And I, I remember at night driving home and I would pray, Lord, I just would love to just give my whole life to that. I, that, that I could serve and pour into and encourage the people of God. I was thinking about that yesterday. Um, young parents, I don't know how to tell you this, you're going to look up in no time and your daughter's going to be living in South America. I mean, I'm just telling you it's that quick. She's gonna, they're going to move on. And I've told you... Um, I'm not sure why goodbyes land on me as hard as they do, but they do. I think I told you, if you can feel the grief of separation in your spleen, I feel it about as deep as you can, you can feel it so hard. I was thinking about it yesterday, because Lauren um, went back yesterday. She, she's in Florida for a few days visiting her brother and her, his family, and then on to Rinyaka, Chile. She's there because there is a church that she loved during her college years. She's there to participate and serve and to be a presence in this church with a desire to, to help move there this year. Yesterday, drove them to the airport. I'm driving back and I'm, I'm just trying to stay out of the ditch because there's snow everywhere and I'm crying and and I remember that burden from when I was a young man that, that I could just, maybe the Lord would allow me to, to see his people encouraged and served and blessed. And it occurred to me that maybe one way, maybe a primary way, that God would see that desire worked out is that he gave us three children who by God's grace love the church. Don't don't you, don't you desire that this generation would praise the works of God to the next generation and that they would praise the works of God to another generation if by God's grace he has given them a love for the people of God and a desire to serve. It could be that the desire that was planted in my heart as a young man would be realized among a people that I don't know and I don't even speak their language. And if I'm right, that would be consistent with the way that God works. This is how God advances the hope of the gospel from one generation to the next. We just open our mouths with a parable. And we utter dark sayings of old, things that we have heard and known, things that we've heard from our fathers. And we do not hide them from our children. We will not hide them from our children telling to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord, his might, his wonders that he has done. Why? So that the next generation would know him, a children yet, yet unborn, that they would rise up and tell it to their children so that they would put their hope in God. So Father, grant that, would you? Um, would you grant that again and again and again? Lord, I pray that the prolonged intentional gospel exposure where little boys and girls witness those around them engaged in that thing which is dearest to their hearts 
they voice their praise to the Lord, as they engage with the truths of Scripture, as they preach God or hear God's word preached, as they come to the table and all of it. Father, would you awaken desires in them that are alien to them? Would you bring life from the dead? And Lord, even through a faulty and partial methodology, would you save them? Would you cause them to know and to love and to serve the God of their moms and dads? And as we often pray, we pray it now. Would you be esteemed and magnified and glorified in that? We pray in Christ's name. Amen.